Hi everyone, I'm Anne Helen Peterson and this is Work Appropriate. Last month, someone wrote to us with a workplace quandary that became the centerpiece of this episode. They said, I'm tired of being thought of as the difficult one. They weren't talking about being difficult in the way you might think. They weren't constantly asking for extensions or struggling to figure out how to create a PDF. They were just being. More to the point, they were asking, politely and repeatedly, for people to use their correct pronouns. The negligence of that straightforward request, plus a few other things that you'll hear about later in the episode, created a scenario in which they were continually asking for something, continually forced to speak up, continually the problem. This quandary made me and my producer, Melody, realize that we'd received a whole slew of submissions with the same issue at their core, which was basically, my identity is not and should not be a problem, but my workplace treats it, purposefully or not, like it is. To address these questions, I've asked someone to come on as co-host who's really figured out how to identify when your workplace is treating your identity as a problem, and all of the strategies you can employ that don't involve making yourself and your identity smaller. My name is Morgan Givens. I am a storyteller, a writer. Um, I produce for daily news shows, podcasts, and I'm the creator of the podcast Flyest Fables. I'm also a black trans autistic dude in the audio space, in the nonprofit space. So look, if you got any issues, I probably experienced them. <laughs> so I guess that's a, a short, brief way of just explaining who I am. As you just said, you are someone who is really open about your identity as a black oh, trans yeah. man in spaces that like public radio that are traditionally <laughs> very white. Um, oh, yeah. And, but then also <laughs> law enforcement, right? Could you, oh, yeah. could you talk a little bit about that journey? Have you always been comfortable? with talking openly about who you are essentially kind of um you know i mean well let's see i think the trans part because it that was a journey in and of itself mm -hmm. so i think kind of accepting that i was queer accepting you know at least initially i was like oh i like women oh what is this you know i grew up in in like the 90s right. in the early 2000s so uh, I, I, you know, I, I didn't show up like, oh, I'm, 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 you know, the shit. I'm, I am who I am as a black trans guy, like off the jump. No, that would be a lie. I don't believe in lying to people. Um, it took me time to get there. By the time I got to the D.C. Police Department, that's that's where I was for a couple of years. I did some work kind of rewriting their training curriculum mm. before I bounced because I was like, oh, this is going to crush my soul before I can bring about any kind of change I really believe in. Mm -hmm. But, you know, prior to that, I worked in retail. And I actually began my transition in retail uh, in North Carolina. But when I got to the police department, I had been on testosterone for a couple of years. So for all intents and purposes, people would look at me and assume I was like this cis heterosexual dude, which means that, you know, the gender I was assigned at birth is the one I stuck to. Mm -hmm. And I like the opposite gender. Right. Well, when I got to the police department, they called themselves, you know, they're like, we're going to get ahead of this. We're going to let everybody in the academy know there's a trans guy coming. And I was like, why would you do that? <laughs> why, why did you have a meeting about the fact that there's going to be a trans recruit? Like, what, 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 why does everybody, what are you, huh? You know, it was one of those situations. They were so afraid of being sued. And I'm like, I don't believe in suing you off jump. If you have questions, we can, we can address that. Uh, and so I get there. 
And everybody, I'm like, why is everybody staring at our class so hard? Like everybody in my my academy class was like, why is everybody looking at us like this? And it wasn't like, oh, it's a new class. They was like mean mugging, but not like, not nasty, but they was really eyeballing us. Right. And I was like, what is this? What is this? Come to find out these clowns had told everybody it was a trans kid coming. But then showing their own transphobia, they thought they was going to be able to look at me and tell. <laughs> so when we're all out there, they're like, we don't know who it is. Which one is it? Like the officers was confused. Oh, my god! The recruits was well, confused. And it's so backwards, right? Because they, yep. they wanted to do that. Maybe someone was like, we want to be better about how we... Mm-hmm integrate this trans person in the department we want to make sure that people don't say things but by putting this huge like target on someone in the class actually attracted like a lot more transphobic behavior than there would have been otherwise. so much more i was like y'all could have just you could have at least called and been like do you want us to do this (laughs) right (laughs) well and that's something that so many hr policies i'm sure we'll get into this Mm-hmm. A lot of things would be solved by like just having a conversation about just like, just ask, yep. you know, just yep. just hit me up and ask. And, you know, I knew I was going into even in the D.C. area, a fairly it's a conservative profession. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's just what it is. It's filled, you know, with what we call toxic masculinity through the roof. <laughs> um, but I knew that going in and part of my strategy for coming out was I'm going to wait. And so for like two months, the class was like, I don't know. They keep saying there's a trans person in this class. That does not make sense because we're not. I don't see a trans person anywhere. You know, and at the same time, I was dipping out to another locker room for my shower after PT, you know, and nobody noticed. I'm like, y'all want to be cops and detectives and you didn't notice I wasn't here doing shower time. So. <laughs> but I, I, my plan was they need to get to know me first yeah. because... You know, people have a tendency if they find out I'm trans first in those situations, that's all they see. That's the yeah, first thing they see. And totally. so it's as as opposed to being an integrated part of who I am, it's it's the only thing that they know about me. Mm-hmm. And so I waited like two to three months. And then I told my sergeant, I was like, hey, I'm going to tell the class now, you know, and he was like, well, what do you need? And I was like, man, nothing. I mean, I'm just going to tell the class. Uh, They brought in the lieutenant for the academy. They brought in the commander for the academy while I'm telling the class. And on one hand, I'm like, this is overkill. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, I appreciate the support. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so I just I just told the class and. You know, there was one guy in the back who was like, oh, this is what they've been staring at us for. But he was fine. (laughs) And then pretty much everybody was just like, man, you still Morgan, whatever. Like, we got you. Let us know if somebody messes with you, which went against my expectations. Because I was like, I had some prejudgments about how they were going to respond. And, you know, my class had my back after that. I had no issues with any of the officers, you know, but I think my approach is why I didn't. Um, And by the time I graduated, I had somebody who is in charge of what is called the civil disturbance unit. They're the people who show up when there are protests. And (laughs) he's like, you know, I'm so glad I met you. I'll think about trans people and queer people differently because I did. And I'm like, you are a 17 year veteran of the department. Like, I know you think that's a compliment, but I am. I am. That is not a compliment. That is not the compliment. You went 17 years in your life without Mm -hmm. encountering another trans person that in any way challenged your understanding of trans people. Yeah, and which goes to show like how the the power discrepancy between right. the police department and those communities. Because I'm like, man, you ran into us, you just didn't know. Mm-hmm. Or you ran into us and you didn't listen to them when you did. Yeah. Um, so it, it was an interesting experience. I don't regret the experience because it prepared me for a lot of things mm-hmm. going forward. 
Um, it also taught me a lot of things about some, some, you know, some of the ways I view people and my expectations of people. It, it reminded me to give others a bit more grace, I think, yeah. <laughs> and and think that they can they can attain. I'm like, I'm not going to believe you can't do it because I've I've seen evidence of people who would have sworn I will never talk to a trans person long as I live. And I'm like, hey, man, we're best friends now, my guy, you know. <laughs> so, <Yes>. so. <laughs> so we got a ton of really good questions from listeners about identity just generally in the workplace. And one we heard a lot was a variation of this question about how much of myself should I share at work? And this comes from Erica. I'm a gay employee at a small company in the Midwest. One of my coworkers is very openly conservative. He's never been outright hateful or bigoted, but knowing what he believes is enough to make me not want to come out at work. At first, I was fine with not coming out, but the longer I work here, the harder it is to avoid my sexuality and relationships coming up as a topic of conversation. It's wearing on me to lie or evade all the time. In addition to this, I've become friendly with my conservative coworker's manager. In getting to know this other coworker, I decided to come out to them. I then had to explain to this person why I didn't want them to out me to my other coworker, who is also their subordinate. Nothing has happened since then, but the coworker I'm out to seems to be more upset about it than I am. I don't want to interfere with good working relationships, but lying and asking other people to lie for me is wearing on me. I want to be able to freely share my life with my coworkers, but I'm worried about my coworkers' reaction and my boss's willingness to intervene. Should I give my coworker the benefit of the doubt? And if yes, is there a good way to go about coming out to this person? The first thing that I want to make sure and acknowledge is that not everyone has the option of keeping parts of their identity Mm -hmm. private. Um, And we'll come back to that. But let's use this question as a jumping off point for the the idea of disclosure. So, Morgan, what is your reaction to this question? Uh, My reaction is like, I feel that in my gut. Mm -hmm. Like, I have been in that exact position um, many times. Uh, and and it's gotten easier to show up as myself each time. Mm, you know, it's it's yeah. it's like a muscle you work on. It's 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 practice. Don't believe that you know the the queer trans gay folks you see out here stunting. You know, with a cause where we were not always like this. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and so that I, I say that so it does not appear as something that is unattainable. We can all get there, but it's also about understanding the bounds of safety where you are. And what is literally safe for you physically and mentally. Like, I I always kind of preface that because, you know, I live in the District of Columbia. And even when I was in North Carolina, I was really open. But I was in a place in North Carolina where it was safer for me to be that way. And I understand it's not safe for everyone to be that way. But this letter gives me the sense that at least in this space, there is some safety, at least in one person, Mm -hmm. which is this manager that you've kind of gotten to know, Erica. And... I my my thing was you've already done the thing I would have suggested first which is find the ally in that place because it's not always true but usually there's at least one mm-hmm. there's at least one person with some sense yeah. <laughs> in that yep. place whether they are you know on the same level as you within the hierarchy or not find that person and you've already done it granny you had to tell that person not to out you we all got room to grow okay <laughs> 
you know, you don't run around outing people. But it, I hope it feels good to know that there is someone there who is upset on your behalf, because sometimes we get so into this idea that we are not allowed access to those emotions in those spaces mm-hmm. that we sometimes need somebody to be that way for us to know it's okay for us to be upset. Yeah. It's okay for us to like wonder why I feel this way about this coworker who I know is a bigot or I believe will have bigoted views or react to me however once they find out this thing about me. The next thing I would say is like make sure you know your rights in yep. this place. Yep. Um I am a firm believer and I'll I'll repeat this many times in documentation. You know, I am a firm believer in having your receipts. That means every time if you decide you want to come out and or and, and it, is it coming out or just being yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you decide you feel safe enough to be your full self here, and we have to be careful of where we are our full selves. Not every place is safe, again. But when you decide to, if that person has something slick to say, document it. Write it down. The date and time. What they said verbatim. Because people will try to say they didn't say the things they said. And it's like, well, I got the date you said it, the time you said it, and what you said. But you know, I, I was in a similar situation when I worked in retail, and I, I'll just call it the circle with a dot place. Uh, and I told a manager who I felt I could trust. And I had a coworker as well who was like, I'm not getting on board. She was like, I don't understand it. It's weird. And I'm like, weird to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it is, you are the one who does not understand it. And because you don't understand it, you want to foist your discomfort on me. That's not my discomfort to hold. You know, that's not my quote unquote shame to hold because they, you know, we live in a society that makes us think we have to hide that part of ourselves, that we are not worthy of being our full selves, that we have to shred parts of our humanity in order to exist in certain spaces. And the way I've gotten around that is kind of accepting that my humanity is mine and it's not up for debate. And if that means I'm going to be human in this space, then I'm going to be human in this space. But I understand how that can be uncomfortable. I understand how it, it can fit. It, it feels weird to go against the grain because, you know, as humans, we are built for that social interaction to a degree. We are built for that togetherness and going against the grain pulls us out of that realm of togetherness, but there are other realms of togetherness. Um, and so it sounds like you have people here. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you have someone to support you. And maybe it's not so much about coming out to this person. It's more about not hiding who you are anymore. Right. And it's it's about accepting that you are worthy of not hiding who you are. Right. You know, especially if you are you are in this place where you feel safe. And you know, again, I will say you are not responsible for his feelings. And a lot of this is you being worried and managing how he's going to react. You are only responsible for how you react and how you respond. And that's on him. Yeah. That's on him. It reminds me of one of my favorite sayings, which is other people's feelings about me are none of my business. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes a long time to take that in, though. You'd be like, but it is my business. Yeah. No, like me. Love me. It's like- <laughs> Especially uh, if you are socialized in a way. And I think a lot of women are socialized in this mm-hmm. way to always care what other people think about you. Yeah. Right. Sure. So if that is some part of the way that you have been socialized, it's hard to let go of thinking about that. It really is. It's not easy. But it's I think I think for advice, let's think uh, there's two scenarios here. One mm-hmm. is this potential bigot has some sort of power over the person who's mm-hmm. asking the question, Erica. And the other mm-hmm. is that this person does not have power. So your advice, first of all, is regardless 
document. Absolutely. The way that I would do it and have done it in the past is like you send an email to yourself. Yes. So that it's time stamped. It is. And they can't question it. (laughs) That is very smart. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And, but then how would you approach this differently depending on the amount of power that this coworker potentially has? It would depend. You know, I've been in a situation where someone did have the power over my job and was not very keen on who I was as a person. Mm. Uh, And I had to consider, am I willing to lose this job? Am I in a position to lose this job? And do I have lateral support if I decide to stand up for myself here? You know, and so sometimes standing up for ourselves doesn't mean taking the fight to them in that moment. It means caring for our future selves as well. Yeah. And so thinking about, can I afford to eat without this? What does that do to my home life with me and my wife? Okay, does this mean I need to start looking elsewhere? Does this mean I need to start putting out fillers elsewhere? And so when I've had instances or had that instance where someone was in a position of power over me, I reached out to the people I knew. I said, they got my back. If I say something, they have my back. I talked to my wife. I said, babe, this is going on. I will not stand for it. And I'm in a position where I don't have to. Are you okay if I do this? You know, and so I had the conversations to make sure I had that foundational support before I basically went head on with this person and was like, you will not treat me this way. You will not talk to me this way because I had the space to do that. You know, and not everyone has that space. And so if they're in a position of power over you and you need this job, there is no shame. And saying nothing. There is no shame in keeping that to yourself because you are protecting yourself in a different way. As long as you can enter that space and your mental space is okay, and you're able to figure out how to put up those boundaries mentally to leave that where it is, to drop it at the door, then that's totally cool. You know, but my advice if they have the power over you is to decide, you know, first, can I afford not to have this job? And if the answer is no, that's going to dictate your next steps. And if the answer is yes, that'll dictate your next steps as well. That's such a great and empathetic response, because I think sometimes people respond in scenarios like this with what they would do in that situation with disregarding those other Mm -hmm. contextual aspects in terms of is there job security? Do I need the health insurance? To cover yep. my kids, you know, all those different things that might make There's it more difficult to make the decision that you might otherwise want to, you know, in oh, your, yeah. your most Make like, it in your brain. Yes. Like, say it out loud. Beat your chest and be like, I would make yes. that decision yes. if my babies didn't need to eat or I didn't <laughs> need to go to the doctor next right. month, you know? And so don't beat yourself up for life being life, yeah. I guess. Our next two questions are about caring for yourself and your coworkers when your workplace is inherently demoralizing. First is a question from Natalie. I recently started working for a small nonprofit that markets itself as a racial equity organization. Despite all of senior management and the majority of staff, minus the CEO, being white identified, there's a palpable misalignment in how the organization defines itself and its values and how myself and other BIPOC individuals view and experience it. Navigating the spaces of Black person is frustrating, exhausting, and demoralizing. Unfortunately, I need a job, and leaving isn't an option right now. So I'm curious to know how other Black folks have learned to navigate these spaces and protect themselves and their well-being. Do they put their head down and just focus on their work, try to offer feedback, 
in the hopes that it might be received? Or are there other strategies folks have used to get through or get out? Mm. All right, Morgan, what's your experience with this dynamic? Let's see. Uh, As far as what to do, all of the above. Uh (laughs) All of Uh the above. All three things. And sometimes at once. I have been in that space because one of the things that tends to happen if you're like a black person or a black trans person or a queer person or an autistic person is they're like, we'll just plug you in right here and think we have to do nothing else differently. And it's like, that's that's not how it works. Like, I'm not your token. I'm not here to like rubber stamp that you're a good white person. Like, that is not my job. That is not my role. So I feel that I, I have been in an organization you know, that was actually started by really radical people in the 70s, like spent time in prisons um, for the protests that they were engaged in for the rights of others. And the organization, when I joined it, had somehow lost this connection to how radical they were when they started. And it seemed like they were afraid to really push against power structures. Mm. And that was in causing an inherent issue because we worked in prisons. The main power structure you're pushing back against is going to be white supremacy here. And you have to be able to name it. You have to be able to call it what it is. And so when I've been in that position, there was, it was me and this other black person, this, this black woman who is still a good friend of mine to this day. And we were the only two in the North America offices. And she was in LA and I was in DC and we had these full you know, team meetings. And we would literally be texting each other the whole time. Because one of the things that I have found that is super helpful when I'm in that space, if there is another black or brown person who gets it, and even if they're not in that space with me, if I got a friend I can text, like, you will not believe what these people just said up in this meeting. Yo, like, did you hear that? Did you? Oh, I heard that. Like, being able to have somebody who can affirm the reality as you see it is very grounding in those places because you are constantly buffeted by the winds of like white reality. And you're like, that (laughs) is not my world. Like, I don't know how to deal with this. I can't sail these seas. Um, And so I I, I found somebody who I could talk to and be like, child, did you hear that? And she'd be like, boy, I did, you know. Well, and it, it keeps you from that feeling of being gaslit. Exactly, because right? that's when it, it really gets discombobulated. Right, you have someone who's just affirming to you over and over again, like this white norm, just because it's always invisibilizing itself as white norm, mm-hmm. right? Like that doesn't yeah. mean that it's not still really weird. Right? It, that's it, it the can thing. be very weird. <laughs> that's the thing about whiteness is that it, is, it tries to establish itself as the norm, right? Just as the status quo. Yep. That's and where the power need, lies And you need in someone it. else who's like, this is super fucking weird. Like, exactly. Like, did you? Like, I'm not the only one. Yeah. Why did they say that to me like that? Right. Why are they giving me the assignments that you would give a kindergartner? Like, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, and so... It's it's so in those spaces, one of my strategies was to find another person, another black person, another brown person. If they were in that office, again, allies are important. And it's, you know, you have to vet people, (laughs) you know, because people will tend to show you who they are over time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like I've I've reached out to my other black friends or brown friends who were not even in that space. Like, y'all will not believe what I'm dealing with this week. And they're working somewhere else. I'm like, you won't believe what I dealt with this week. And so having those moments of commiseration are, are so important. They're so important. Yeah. 
And I think, you know, we had um, someone who had worked in, has worked in nonprofits for a long time mm-hmm. and been in a lot of organizations. She was the co-host a couple episodes again, Nicole. Yeah. Talking about you can work in nonprofits that are ostensibly DEI aligned forever. You can mm-hmm. have a CEO as a person of color. But mm-hmm. until you actually have an organization that is not majority white, that like that whiteness is going to be really it's suffocating be and hard. And it's hard it to is. find spaces Especially if you do a particular sort of work that, you know, you don't, you can't apply to a billion jobs. Like, you don't have infinite options. So Uh, how do you navigate it? That is real, you know? And so part of it is, I often ask myself, you know, when I've been in those situations, what can I stand? I know I don't deserve to be treated this way. And so reaffirming that constantly, but also, again, having to take in the context of, can I lose this job? Like, when I was working there and dealing with that, I could not afford to lose that job. Like it took me time to find another job. And so it's like, how do I keep myself from like believing the lies they're telling me, believing these white lies about myself. Mm -hmm. And so I began finding other outlets creatively. I got on stage storytelling because it reminded me of one of my skills. And so Mm -hmm. I dive into the things that remind me of the skills I have, the things that I I inherently can do by virtue of who I am. And so, and then sometimes I had a goodness just ask my friends, I'm like, I need a gas up today. Like I had a bad day. Here's what happened. I need a gas up because my critical voice is very loud and it is picking up what these people are telling me. And I know that's not true, but I need to borrow a little of your confidence and a little of your strength for a bit because I'm having a moment. And and that has meant I've had to be more vulnerable with myself, mm. you know, and then also accepting that I have emotions that don't need to be cut off because again, if you're black in the world in any capacity, if you're queer in this world or you live at the intersections of any of these existences, we are taught to shield our emotions from ourselves to make others comfortable. So yeah. it's it's been a lot of work, you know, also diving into that. And and so yeah, part of it is finding that person you can laugh with, recognizing what you can change and what you cannot, which you know is is like the alcoholic anonymous creed. Like I that is my jam. I'm like, I yes, okay, I got you. No more drinking and also this, change the things. I understand what I can change and what I cannot. And recognizing when I have to let that go, but also realizing I can do good outside of this organization. Like nonprofits do not have a lock on the good I can do. They don't have a lock on me buying this person dinner. They don't have a lock on me donating the gift to this place. They don't have a lock on what I do outside of them. And and often when we're inside of them, we think that's the only way we can do good. But that's, that's not true. And so it's about taking those moments to breathe and ground ourselves and remember that this is one part of our life story. And this is going to sound wild, but when I, one of the ways I get through this type of stuff is that I think ahead. I'm like, when I am 80 years old, am I going to be thinking about these people? God willing, no. <laughs> you know, And so that kind of helps. That kind of helps me too. I think it also speaks to something that we talk about on this podcast all the time, which is that people who work in passion jobs, like vocations, mm. right, callings, yeah. oftentimes do align so fully with the work that they do that it's easy to fall into that trap of like, mm-hmm. if I'm not happy, if I'm not doing everything I can in this job, then I am failing in some yeah, way. That's when real. people who aren't in jobs like that are never like, what I do in my job from 
you know, the eight hours that I put in every day is the limit of who I am as a person. Exactly. But we live in that, you know, this capitalist world that, that tells us our, our output, our product yeah. is, is our worth. Um, and that's, that's simply not true. So a lot of it is like unlearning the, the, the capitalist impulses that have been kind of put into us from beginning and, and disconnecting our worth from our output, disconnecting, you know, my worth from my work. Like I, think my work is worthy, but I don't tie my worthiness to what I put out. And that, that, that again, is a skill. I work on it every day. Same, you know, I've had instances same. even recently where I'm like, I am a terrible person because they just edited the crap out of this paper. And it's like, no, man, they just edited the paper. Like, <laughs> yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> you know? right. So, but it, it is, it is a constant work in progress. And, and it is, it's just, it's a skill that, it, you know, we, we, we work on it. It becomes reflexive. Um, but it, it takes time, you know, again, so as, you know, I and others began to do the work of disentangling our work and our worth. Um, you know, just patience with yourself. I think the biggest thing is when in these spaces to be patient and kind, because these are the spaces that can activate our critical voices, especially mm -hmm. as black people, especially when we know, you know, unfortunately, our resumes have to be three times as stacked, perhaps as one of our peers, you know, just to get the same shot. And so it it, it takes time, you know, just takes time and, and be kind to you. You deserve the kindness. You deserve the softness. So yeah. Work Appropriate is brought to you by ZocDoc. Now, over break, I got a sore throat and I was so scared. I was like, do I have strep A, which is going around? Do I have COVID? Do I have just some other random virus? I had no idea. And I wasn't home where my, my doctor is. I resorted to texting my friends to try to figure out what the symptoms were. It was just so hard to get quality medical advice from my group chat. But I can find it from a doctor on ZocDoc. Thousands of medical professionals on ZocDoc are there to help you. They listen like a friend and give you the expert care that you need. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun, including a sore throat that has gone away. No more doctor roulette or scouring the internet for questionable reviews. With ZocDoc, you have a trusted guide to connect you to your favorite doctor you haven't met yet. Millions of people use ZocDoc's free app to find and book a doctor in their neighborhood who is patient-reviewed and fits their needs and schedule just right. Go to ZocDoc.com work and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash work. ZocDoc.com slash work. Work Appropriate is brought to you by Smile Actives. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? I kind of was. Right? I drink a lot of coffee and I feel like I'm slowly getting a little bit of stains on my teeth um, from you know coffee, wine, whatever it is. And I've started using Smile Actives and it's been two weeks. I feel like my teeth are whiter. And here's the thing. 97% of Smile Actives users in a clinical trial reported up to six shades whiter on average all within 30 days. I think this is happening to me. I don't know. We'll see. Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Well, before you visit a dentist, you should know that their whitening treatments can be very expensive and it's not just the price. You also have to book the appointment and schedule time away from work or family to sit in a dentist's office chair while undergoing the procedure. It's a total hassle. Fortunately, now you can try Smile Actives at home or anywhere at any time. Like you just put a little bit on your toothbrush along with your toothpaste 
It doesn't even taste bad. It's great. And it's been formulated with polyclean technology to boost stain removal and deliver active whitening ingredients into teeth, grooves, and crannies to get better whitening. So no change in your routine, no extra time, yet people will start commenting on your whiter, brighter smile in just days. Smile Actives is the whitening boost your favorite toothpaste needs to give you the smile you deserve. Visit smileactives.com work to receive our special buy one, get one free offer plus free shipping and handling. That's smileactives.com work. Our next question is similar, but it's about an outright conflict between the values of an organization and the people who work for it. So this is Renee. I work as a library director in higher education at a Catholic college. Throughout the years, the college has made LGBTQIA folks feel like their identity is a problem to be wrestled with. While there isn't outright discrimination, there isn't outright celebration from the top administrators. The Catholic order we are connected to is especially anti-LGBTQIA. This tension wears on my employees who identify as such, resulting in feelings of burnout and stress, what they have labeled as drowning. I've approached our Title IX coordinator for advice, and I'm told to offer self-help options, e.g. use EAP and take time off. I worry this is not enough to show folks they matter to the library, nor is it enough to help them combat the anti-LGBTQIA sentiments on campus. Do you have advice on anything else I can offer my staff who feel dismissed by the overall climate of the college? Or is it really all boundary work on the part of the individual? Uh, Here's what the thing I'll start with here is that Mm -hmm. this is a classic example of something that you were talking about before is that people who work in libraries, like the library profession, the industry, whatever we want to call it, Mm -hmm. there aren't enough jobs. People are desperate for jobs. So people who are in this position, I am sure if they could have taken a a different job right at a school whose entire mission statement, like who does, who believes that their lifestyle is sinful, that they would not be working in this institution. They do not have that choice. So do they leave the industry or do they, (sighs) yeah, what do they do? And also I think it's interesting that this comes from a manager who's really trying to figure out how to work this. So what do you think? That I mean, I think the, the 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 part of that you talk about it being a manager who is like, how do I help? Yeah, you know the people I work with. I I think the first thing is to just make it known, and not in like the I'm an ally way, but continue to make it known that you do see them yeah. and you do support them because. You know, unfortunately, one of the things we get good at as being queer people, being trans people, is navigating these inherently hostile spaces. But we've always had to find community within those spaces. And so in one way, it's about you continuing to hold that space for them so that they know there is someone who sees their struggle on this campus, who understands perhaps, you know, or can at least recognize that cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. of being part of a religion that professes an all loving God while engaging in behaviors that are not all loving, you know, and that's, that's a lot to hold in one space. And so you being there and making it obvious that you are fighting for them, um, making it obvious that you see them and then being real about the possibilities of what can happen, because it's much easier to have someone fight for us who is realistic about 
what they've been told than it is to hold on to this hope that things are going to change overnight, mm-hmm. that things yep. are going to change rapidly. Again, it's about, I think, disentangling that idea of religion from who they are, but being able to sit and recognize their inherent humanity in this space. And so it might be about giving them access to resources. Like I know everybody's always like the body keeps the score, but it does, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's so books that can help them. It's a classic because it's a classic. It's a classic for a reason. (laughs) It's like some of these resources can be them talking to one another. You know, again, it's about creating that space where they know they can say whatever they need to. Like, this is bullshit. And know that their manager is going to be cool hearing that. And that their manager is like, it is bullshit. (laughs) And I'm doing what I can. Often knowing somebody is fighting for you can do wonders. So I would create that community among the people you have at that library. You know, I would find ways to create that space for them to create places where they can find joy. So what does joy look like for them? Like, right, like ask them what that means, what that looks like, and find ways you can bring that into that space for them. Because just because the outer community is super hostile, you can be part of creating that bubble of safety for them. So find the things that bring them joy, find the things that make them happy and remind them of those things and and try to give them those things, you know, when you can, which I know is hard and you are already doing so much work. You are already advocating for them, but sometimes advocating is creating space too. So maybe it's about figuring out how to create that space in that library where they have all these stories and all these different worlds they can like also dip into and disappear if, if that makes sense. The only other piece of advice that I think that I would give is that this person should try to cultivate in the quietest way possible a feeling of empathy in terms of understanding or being being on the lookout for, let's say, like communications from the Catholic order that the the college is associated with. Mm -hmm. If there's a communication or like a ruling or um, a a homily or whatever it is (laughs) that is um, that feels really hostile. Right. And maybe it doesn't feel hostile to this manager or outright hostile to this manager's identity because they are not LGBTQIA. Right. Mm -hmm. But understanding and recognizing, like having that part of their brain that lights up when they see this, this is going to feel like shit. Right. Yeah. This is going to feel incredibly devaluing and seeing how you can not only like not send an email that's like, I understand what you're feeling. <laughs> do not do that. But just yeah. send an email that says, if you need some space right now, like this is a great time. Or not yes. even if you need some space. Take some. Take, Take some the day space if you can. today. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm always against the if you need some time, take it. Like just yeah. take it. Just right? take it. No, that's a that's a great that's great advice. And I mean, just as you said that I'm thinking about how much it would have meant in 2020 and leading up to the summer of 2020 if any of our white managers had said things are really bad in the news for black people right now how about you take two days like call off black today you know <laughs> like it's just like i'm black not gonna make it because you know it, it is hard to it is hard to work through those moments yeah. while you're being told by people above you that what you see is not true only for months later them to go, oh, my God, racism and fascism. And you're like, we've been screaming it for you. <laughs> and so, right. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really wonderful advice. Like, truly. Let's let's see if we can offer some very specific advice here. Mm-hmm. I think that Renee wants to know, like, how could I celebrate 
and acknowledge and show the value that these workers have to the library, the stuff that the the administration is not showing. So what do you think? You know, as you're asking me that, I started thinking about how cheap little pins are that you can like wear (laughs) on your clothes. You know, they make really cool pins. Like a friend of mine gave me one that just said a sign tired at birth with the trans flag colors. And just I was like, oh, my God, you see me. Right. (laughs) We were good, you know, and so it's 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 the little things. Because what's funny is people who are often very bigoted don't know all the little cues we have. Now, granted, wearing a pin is very obvious, but there are things you can do, like putting up the little flags in your office. Mm-hmm. When you're, we're talking about celebratory authors in November, celebrating you know authors with debuts in March, even if you don't directly put on the thing, here are all the queer authors we got this week. You put queer authors in that pile. Right. You put them up front. And so you don't have to blatantly draw attention to it, but I promise you, those who are parts of those communities will see it. They will say, wow, they are putting us right up here as though we are okay because we are, as though nothing is wrong with us because it isn't. And so it's about those little moments when you can take to kind of undermine that nonsense, um, especially if the library is is a bit of your domain. And so, mm-hmm. you know, how can you put these up in a newsletter, do you have a newsletter for the library? Or, you know, how do you, as you said, you know, you can tell people to take a day off. Do you, you know, sometimes it's not even about identity. And, and I'm not saying you're not doing this, but do you have time to, you know, gas them up a bit at the end of the week? And I don't want to put more things on your plate, but do you have time to send an email? Like, yo, the way you organize that shelf, perfection. Like whatever you can do to kind of give them that reminder that they are good and they are worthy and that you you enjoy having them around without, you know, worrying about the boundaries you do still have to maintain as one of their supervisors. And so I think it's about, especially as someone who is not part of that community, people who are also part of your community will listen to you faster than they listen to us. I love that. Our last question is from Kimberly, and this is the one that inspired this whole episode. Our colleague Ari is going to read it. I work remotely as a news editor. I'm one of two openly queer people in my department and the only trans person. Probably not the only disabled person, but it feels like I am. I am sick of feeling like I am the difficult one, asking for my correct pronouns and name to be used. Asking where there's a non-gendered restroom the one time I visited the office, there was none needing to use our open leave for therapy appointments and rest days, or working through symptoms. Quitting isn't an option, it's worse at other workplaces. How can I be more firm in advocating for my needs and rights without jeopardizing my job security or feeling like shit after? So, Maureen, do you have any uh, examples of this in your own experience or someone you know who's navigating this Oh, I I do. I, I have an example, you know, just recently. Mm-hmm. It was another thing where I was like, wifey? Here's what's going on. I've tried. It's been seven months. She was like, get out. I hit up other friends in different positions. They was like, get out. You know, I felt like I was in Jordan Peele's movie, but for audio. And so I was like, so I I have been in that position where I've had to advocate for myself. And like I, I, I mentioned earlier, documentation is going to be your best friend here. Uh, and it also means you're going to have to learn to be uncomfortable with yeah. being uncomfortable. And that's hard. That is hard to yeah. do. We were talking about this a bit earlier, but the way that capitalism works is that mm-hmm. the ideal worker is the worker that provides the least friction in the system. 
Yes. And because capitalism, at least in the United States, Mm -hmm. is very much a white institution. So much. (laughs) White, straight, depends on people being married, right? Because they Mm want to be able to depend on labor so that they can, like, have other people taking care of the home. There's all these different things that are the expectations, the norms within American capitalism specifically. Mm -hmm. So any person who is not those things is conceived of just because of who they are as friction. Yeah. Right? And so that makes it so that anything you do, even just the word accommodation, right? There's like this negative word, word, this negative understanding of accommodations, like it's unfair treatment. Instead of it's Mm -hmm. just saying, I want the system to work for me too. (laughs) Right? That's all it is. Yes. (laughs) Instead of working only for this certain type of person. Exactly. And so what this does though, I think to the individual is it really makes them feel like they are the problem. Right? That they are always complaining. That they are combative. That there is something Mm -hmm. about them that is inherently bad, aggressive, off, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that I would say to this person is that like, you are not the problem. You know, not you, at all. You asking for a bathroom that makes you feel comfortable, that is it's not, not a, problem. a problem. You right? deserve to pee. <laughs> like, you know, it's just like, <laughs> yes. it's a shame we have to a- say it. <laughs> and, and asking people to, to use your pronouns, like the thing I find with pronouns is that people who are not trans or do not live with a trans person or not intimate in some way with a trans person, they get so uncomfortable about maybe messing up. Yeah. And so they just I'd like, rather you try. Yes. <laughs> just keep trying. Maybe <laughs> you try. miss the maybe you miss the connecting pronoun at one point in a sentence. Yes. But, but try, keep try. Keep trying. <laughs> and don't make it about you when you mess up. Yes. Just say, Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. And keep yep. it pushing. Because nine times out of ten, people just want the apology and to keep it pushing. Because yep. once you start, I feel so bad for no, now I gotta comfort you yep. for your mistake. <laughs> just say you're sorry yes. and keep it pushing. Like I not promise we're you. not that pressed about it unless you've done it twenty seven times you know because after a certain point it's like okay is this on purpose right yeah but i think like the thing both you and i are trying to say is like it's really hard but you are not the problem right they're not the problem the system is is the problem problem. yeah the system is the problem and there are only two things that they can control here um how they feel about advocating for themselves and whether they advocate for themselves like the, the job security thing is only partly in in their hands you know, you, it, it's one of those things where it's scary to admit how little control we have over that situation, but you have as much control over that situation as you have. And they may not be much. Sure, advocating for yourself could make you feel like or in certain situations could actually jeopardize your job security, which is why I also say documentation, recognizing what you can and cannot afford to have happen, mm-hmm. you know, and tailoring your response to to that and you know and but the the thing that i feel they have the most control over is how they feel after advocating for themselves that means perhaps sitting down and getting into the nitty-gritty of why they feel bad about advocating for themselves and who taught them that they were too much for advocating for themselves because once you have the answer to that it makes it easier to begin doing that work of advocation be like i was taught i don't deserve this by who Who told me I wasn't enough? Who told me my humanity should be up for debate? And when I got, I start getting into the answers of those and I'm constantly kind of asking myself those questions because I I find myself in that position often where I'm like, do I feel like advocating for myself right now? Is it easier to just let it go and let God in the wind do what it's going to do, right? And so 
Um, I, I think getting into why you might perhaps feel bad for advocating for yourself can help you feel better about doing so, you know, and then that again means shedding all this shame that's foisted upon us for having, you know, regular human needs and emotions, yeah. because that's all it is, is a regular human need and emotion. And they're calling it an accommodation. They're calling you difficult, you know, but that's not true. You know, I don't carry the labels that are not yours to carry. It's what I say. I label myself. I, I, I've gotten to the point where I'm able to kind of shed what the world will foist upon me, but not to the point where I don't try to be introspective and be like, well, is there a point to what this person said? But when it comes to like bigotry and denying my inherent humanity, I just don't have the patience for it. Um, and part of that might mean being angry. And we're taught we're not supposed to be angry, especially if you're black. Don't get angry now. Don't you have that emotion? Well, there's a lot of things to be angry about, you know? And so <laughs> I think part of it might just be getting in touch with that that human aspect of your emotions and then just getting in touch and really getting to the point where you can start accepting what you are truly worthy and deserving of outside of what you've been told you're worthy and deserving of by the world. I, Cause like, I don't know your family. I don't know your circumstance, but I know what the world tells you. And I know it's a lie. <laughs> so yeah. I, I love that idea of do not carry the labels that are not yours to carry. Yeah. They're yeah, not mine. Yeah. Mm-mm. You you call me that. I didn't pick that up. I mean, you can toss it all you want, but it's going to keep hitting the ground because I'm not grabbing it, you know? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Morgan, this has just been really wonderful. I'm so grateful that you took the time to join us. Of course. Today. It was fun. I, I really had a good time. I really did. <laughs> Where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? I mean, you know, I'm on Twitter sometimes cutting up at Optimus underscore Mo, like the Transformer, because that's what my <laughs> kid brother called me when I told him I was trans. He said, like the Transformer? I was like, sure, kid. You know? <laughs> like, he's about 14, 15 years younger than me. So I was like, that makes sense. Uh, so I just kind of kept that. And then I have the the podcast Fly is Fables, which is a hope punk series that tells new age fables and fairy tales for amazing yeah yes there's got songs music fantasy all that stuff (laughs) i love it thank you so much again of course of course thanks so much to morgan gibbons for joining me today and thanks to you for listening to work appropriate if you've got a workplace quandary you want help figuring out get in touch You can find submission guidelines at workappropriate.com or send a voice memo with your question to workappropriate at crooked.com. One episode we're working on is tentatively titled, What the Fuck is Wrong with People? And we want your wildest, pettiest, I can't believe this is real lifeist questions about dealing with coworkers. Work Appropriate is a Crooked Media production. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, your host. Our executive producers are Kendra James and Sandy Gerard. Melody Rowell is our producer and editor. Allison Falzetta is our development producer. Music is composed by Chanel Critchlow, and additional production support is from Ari Schwartz. Special thanks to Katie Long and Sarah Geismer. You can follow me on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson, and you can sign up for my newsletter at annhelen.substack.com. Next week, we're talking about what to do when the job you love is grinding you into a fine pulp. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss it. 